truly our hearts are free to worship the Lord and to exalt Him in spirit and in truth this morning. If you're visiting with us in person for the first time today, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. We're thrilled that you have chosen to worship with us. And I hope, and if you didn't, I'm going to say go out and get one. I hope you got kind of what the things I call bag of swag. You know, the good stuff, those tumblers you can fill with coffee and iced tea and different good Georgian sweet tea. You can fill those up with with that. So we hope you receive that. And I would like to invite all of you, and this is where if you're sitting on the end, it's up to you to get this started for me. There are friendship pads that are in your rows. Fill that out. Send it on down to your neighbor. This gives us the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. A couple of quick announcements as we enter into worship. The women's ministry has a suggestion box, and I think I'm pointing in the right direction. It's on the bulletin board above the name tags. And so, ladies, the design behind this is if that is a place you want to visit, an area where the women's council can serve you, they are looking to get input from you all, and so you're invited to do that. Uh, we are still looking for nursery volunteers. We're almost there, but we could use a few more. See Tommy Evans or myself if you have an interest in that. It is a tremendous ministry, and one of the goals we have for this year, we want to see more young people. We want to see, and we want to, wouldn't it be great that from 9 till 3 on Saturday, we meet here at the church, and lunch is provided as well. There is a registration form that's provided in your bulletin, or you can easily just contact the church office if you have an interest. The point of my mentioning it here in February, we can, might go, April, that's a long ways off. Do you know how quickly that will be here? The old blink of an eye, and so we want you uh, to plan your calendars accordingly. So those are some of the things that are going on in the life of the church. And so now as Amy plays, friends, let's prepare our hearts. I was thinking about the fact that one of the names of Jesus, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. And the scriptures promise that where two or three are gathered in his name, he is with us, he is present. And so we invite Jesus into our presence and we're here to pray and to praise and to sing and to hear from him this morning. And so let's prepare our hearts to truly encounter the presence of the living Lord.
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I can't help but think, I don't know that we really have a clue how lost we were and what it cost Jesus to rescue us and to find us. And the more that we know that, the greater and the deeper is our worship of him. Friends, hear the call to worship this morning from Psalm 111, the first four verses. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. And how gracious and merciful you are to initiate and to call us into your presence this morning. We were created to love you and to commune with you, and we thank you that you have rescued us, that you have delivered us from the kingdom of sin and brought us into the kingdom of your Son whom you love. Lord, help us to praise you. Help us to give thanks to you with our whole heart. Greater your works. May we study them and delight in them through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, All Creatures of Our God and King.
seated. That is what worship looks and feels like. All creatures of our God and King, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We are here to exalt him. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and I will read verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here come some of the greatest words you can ever read in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and apply that word to our hearts and lives this morning. Let's stand and continue to praise him, singing, Behold Our God.
Oh, that we would more and more behold the beauty of our King, our Lord Jesus. We come now to our time of prayer, and I need to point out when God answers prayer. And I just am blessed to see Ken and Susan Atkins back with us this morning. For those of you who don't know, Susan was in a pretty significant car accident back a few months ago, and God in his mercy spared her, and here they are back worshiping with us. And we've been praying for them, and this to me is God's personal answer to prayer, that they are back with us. So we rejoice. So as we go to the Lord in prayer, as we pray together, reciting the Lord's Prayer, and then I lead us in a time of prayer, let's remember that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. It is so easy to think of the transcendence of God. And we just sang about it. Behold our God. Who can bring any sort of counsel to him? He's bigger. He's outside of us. All of it. But he's also near us. He dwells with us. Paul wrote, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. He indwells us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he is near us even now as we approach him. Let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Father, we praise you for who you are. We've just sang, who has held the oceans in his hands? You spoke and the world came into being. You sustain the universe by the very breath, the very word of your power. May we join with the heavenly host, with all creation, in exalting and in praising you for who you are. And yet at the same time, you are near us. You are our heavenly Father who shepherds us, who protects us, who guides us, who leads us, who trains us. Thank you for your tenderness, your kindness, your gentleness with us. We pray, Father, as we think about what the words mean, hallowed be thy name, that you would remove any hindrance in our lives, any obstacle that keeps us from loving you. May we learn to love you more fully, more completely. May we give thanks to you with our whole heart, mind, affections, emotions, will, every ounce of our being. And Lord, we long for the coming of your kingdom. It hurts to see all of the ways that not only humanity, but even us turn away from your will, which is perfect and good and acceptable to do what we want. We are so selfish. We live by our own agendas, our own preferences, what makes sense to us. Lord, we long for the coming, the full coming, the consummation of your kingdom. And you give us every day our daily bread. You take care of us in every way imaginable. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. Lord, thank you for your shepherd-like care over us. And Father, we do ask forgiveness for our sins. And we pray that we would be a forgiving people. 
We pray, Father, that we would show grace to others, that, that Lord, you'd free us from all fault-finding, the negative critical spirit we can have, the judgmentalism we can have. Lord, Paul tells us to be careful when we judge for the things we're judging in others. We practice the very same things ourselves, and oh, how I know I have that tendency. We need to see that it is your kindness that leads us and leads others to repentance. So, Lord, help us to be aware of our sinfulness, not to beat ourselves up, but that we may exalt your grace, that we may receive your grace. As we just read in your word just a minute ago, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, what did you do? You made us alive that we can be alive to you. Our hearts can move towards you. Instead of the entropy and the gravitational pull of our lives being away from you, we can more and more move towards you and towards one another. And so, Father, teach us to have our lives revolve around you, your kingdom, your power, your glory. In all things, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.
Let's pray as we approach God's Word this morning. Father, I praise you that you've told us in your Word that it's through the folly of preaching, the foolishness of preaching, that you are saving those who believe. And so, Lord, through the foolishness of preaching, I pray that you would use this And here I am, an imperfect, flawed deliverer of your word, that you would use this to transform all our lives, that you would transform me, that you would transform us, that we would grow more and more to become more human, more Christ-like, more reflecting and displaying the values of your kingdom. So, Father, teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit And thank you for the promise that your word does not return void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing in Paul's letter to the book of Romans. We're still in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 6 through 11 of Romans chapter 6. And what Paul is doing here is he's pretty much restating, continuing the theme that we started to look at last week. The theme is, since he said at the end of chapter 5, Should we continue to sin? You know, we said at the end of chapter 5, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. So does that mean we should continue to live a life of sin? And he says, by no means. And he began the thesis that says, don't you know how can we who have died to sin, died to this old order, this era, this realm, How can we who died to sin, that's our new status, our new reality, how can you continue to live in it any longer? And he's going to continue to focus on that theme as we pick up in verse 6, where he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Last week I shared with you that monumental day, June 25th, 1988, when Evie and I got married. And the point of that, as I said, that that day changed everything. My status went from single to married. My status went from just thinking for myself. Oh, I feel like having dinner at 10 o'clock tonight. Let's do it. Or going out with the guys. Let's do it or playing golf 12 days a week, let's do it. Two, my status went from, hi, honey, what are we doing tonight? What would you like to do? My status went from one thing to another. Now, there was another time in our lives where our status changed. It's when we we went from not owning a dog to owning a dog. Anybody recognize how that can change your life? Now, of course, we did it for the first time when Joel, our son, was younger, but I remember the last time we did it. 
we had these two adorable dogs, Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, they were named Calvin and Hobbes. Okay? And they died in 2019, and Evie and I looked at each other and says, okay, are we enjoying this status of not being dog The first week, we probably went okay, and then we went, we're dog people. We got to have a dog. And so here we were, just a few months before COVID hit, we adopt Gracie, our puggle. And boy, did our status change from that point. Because Gracie went, I'm an only child dog. I want all the attention. And she demands all the attention. She's still, even this morning, coming to church. If we're ever late, I'm going to blame it on Gracie. It took me five minutes to find her from wherever she was hiding. I finally found her under the kitchen table. Everything changes. You've got to go home and feed the dog. You've got to go home and take the dog out. The dog, yes, and we're those kind of people. The dog sleeps in bed with us, okay? But your status changed. We began to look at, last week, what it means to be a Christian. We're so self-oriented. We want to think of being a Christian as always about us. Well, I believe. I confess. I repent. Are those dynamics necessary? Of course. But do you want to know what being a Christian is about? Your status has changed from under judgment to under grace. Your status has changed from guilt to forgiveness, unrighteousness to righteousness. Being a Christian is, a, is God's legal declaration that you have gone, and here's the fundamental status, from death to life, from the realm of death, where everything is about yourself and you're oriented completely toward your, towards yourself. We're the ultimate, humanity is the ultimate nose glued to the belly button sort of creatures. And it leads to death. And our status changes from death to life. We've gone from being dead to the things of God to alive to God. And you know what? Our behaviors may change. They may not. Some of us, our behaviors change quickly. For some of us, they change more slowly. For some of us, growth, we're disciplined people. Maybe we were Marines or something. So we're good at, you know, this way is growth. For others of us, growth looks like this. But the bottom line is, Christianity, your justification, is not determined by the level of your sanctification. It is determined by God's declaration of you that your status has changed and you're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Are you catching the theme with Ephesians 2? That there's some parallels between Romans and Ephesians? You're no longer dead in your trespasses and sins, but you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is telling this story. He's giving us this reality, and he's doing it in a certain way. In Romans 6 through 8, Paul is explaining this in terms of how the gospel fulfills a new exodus. He wants, you have to remember, he is writing this in the first century. He's writing this to a church that is made up 
of Jewish people and Gentile people. So he's alluding to the scriptures they, they would have had at that time, which the scriptures they had at that time were the Old Testament. And so when you read the New Testament, you're not reading it correctly if you don't ask the question, what does this tell me about the Old Testament? What's being alluded to? Not always directly quoted, but what's being referred to and alluded to from the Old Testament here? And in Romans 6 through 8, Paul is alluding to the Exodus. The story of the Exodus, as one commentator put it, where God heard the people of Israel crying in the misery of their slavery and oppression and sent Moses to deliver them, bringing them out of their slavery and bondage. You know, part of our community Bible re reading this week, oh, you thought I would never refer to that, did you? I don't know how many are keeping up with the reading, and I'm not here to put pressure on you, no guilt. And so, but if you are, you realize we're reading out of Exodus? And part of, I love in Exodus 2, where it talks about on all of these verbs, God heard the cry of his people. God saw the misery and oppression that they were going through. He remembered his covenant. Notice we've done nothing at this point for salvation. God saw, God heard, God remembered, and then it says God knew. In other words, he was acquainted with. No is not just I have the inf information. No is a more existential word. That means he's familiar with, he's acquainted with. Romans chapter 6 through 8, Jesus is presented as the greater Moses. He's the one Moses pointed to. He's the one, when you read about Moses, think about Jesus. And one writer put it this way, and this is a longer quote, so bear with me here, but this is the story of Romans 6 through 8. And this is what we have to have in our minds as we go through this. He writes, they came through the Red Sea, leaving behind the land of slavery and discovering a new freedom. God led them to Mount Sinai, where they were given the law. They then spent time wandering in the wilderness and grumbling against God. But he continued to lead them by his own presence in the pillar of cloud and fire until eventually they entered the land they had been given as an inheritance. There's the Exodus. Now, in Romans, Paul is telling a version of the very same story starting with Romans 6. Romans 6 describes how Christians come through baptism like the Red Sea and thus leave behind the land of slavery and enter upon a new freedom. That's the title of the sermon, Ultimate Liberation. So it's like leaving Egypt and setting off for the promised land. But then we're going to get into Romans 7, and it wrestles with the question of what happened at Mount Sinai and the problems that resulted leading to a strange new fulfillment of the law. And Romans 8 then describes the Christian life in terms of God leading his people home to their inheritance, which now is not just a sliver of land, but the whole redeemed creation. And instead of it simply being the law and then a pillar of cloud and fire, Romans 8 is all about the child of God is led by the Spirit. Friends, we are, here's the context for our Christian lives today. We live in the wilderness. We have been set free. We have been liberated. You know what our temptation is? It's always to go back to Egypt. One of the questions I want you to have in your mind, especially as we go through this week by week, is what is Egypt 
for you? What are your particular things that they will lead us to slavery, but they're familiar, they're comfortable? See, the wilderness is dangerous. The spirit leading, we'd rather go where it's comfortable and familiar. I know if I lead a perfectionistic track, I didn't say I was perfect, I said a perfectionistic track, that's one of my Egypts. At least I can be in control. If I'm worried or anxious, that's familiar. That's familiar territory for me. I'm very comfortable with that, that level of Egypt. If I run to food, uh, you know, being a preacher is not easy. I always have to be the one being vulnerable. But these are all the Egypts for me. That instead of living free, but in the wilderness, where I'm left with nothing but trust, nothing but dependence, nothing but relying on God and His Spirit and God's people, and not myself. I'd much rather return to Egypt. What is Egypt for you? And how do we, as we look at this text before us this morning, how do we grow in truly living free? We've been freed from Egypt, we're in the wilderness, we're being led by the Spirit, we're on our way to the promised land. But how do we live this ultimate liberation? And in this text, Paul says there are three things that we need to be aware of. Three ways. He says there is something to know, there is something to believe, and there is something to consider. If you look with me at verse 6, he says, we know, and he goes on. If you look at verse 8, he says, we believe something. And then in verse 11, he says, so you also must consider something. We will be cultivated by our habits, and this no believe, consider is a basic attitude. It's a comportment. It's a disposition of life that we are to have. Knowing certain things, believing certain things, and then considering certain things. Okay, look at verses 6 and 7. There is something to know. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So look at the first words there. We know. There is something to know. Paul is encouraging the Romans and encouraging us to deduce certain things. To deduce what? We have new life. Why do we have new life? Because we are united to Christ. And why does that bring us new life and ultimate liberation? Well, because what's true of Jesus, when you're incorporated into Christ, what's true of Jesus is true of you. When you're incorporated into Jesus, what's true of you becomes true of Him, and what's true of Him becomes true of you. See, it's only because of our union with Christ, that we are justified. I read this quote before, but John Calvin in his institute said, and I think this is one of his most important quotes, he said, how do we receive those benefits which the Father bestowed on his only begotten Son? Not for Christ's only private use, but that he might enrich poor and needy men. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, and we are separated from him. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. 
Do we understand how radical this is? And the implications and the ramifications this has for our faith? See, Calvin is saying here, believing in the right information is not enough. There's all sorts of propositions and information we believe in. I believe that Abraham Lincoln was a former president of the United States. Isn't this President's Weekend, by the way? Yes, it is. Go with me. This is the audience participation part of the sermon, by the way. But we believe that information, we believe that proposition, but none of us are united to Abraham Lincoln, where what he has done is credited or given to us. There are a ton of propositions that we believe that are correct propositions. This has implications for even our evangelism. This means there could be people out in the community, out in the world, that believe the right things about God, about Jesus. But if you're not united to him by faith, what he has done is useless and irrelevant to you. So what does it mean to have a faith that's united to him? Well, again, the reformers are so helpful here because they talked about faith having three elements. Think of it as three legs of a stool, if you would. Those three elements were knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, where we actually, see, knowing the propositions is necessary, but it's only one leg of the stool. If I decided I was a little tired today and didn't feel like uh, preaching standing up, didn't have my normal energy, and I brought a stool up here and I sat, and it had one leg, sermon would be over pretty quickly, wouldn't it? Knowledge is only the first leg. Of the, and then there's ascent. You have to actually know the information and believe it's true. But even then, you only have two legs of the stool. The third leg is trust. You have to entrust yourself to the truth. You have to surrender to it. Surrender yourself and put yourself in the hands of Christ. And through that faith, you're united to him. Now, there is an awful lot of mystery here. Do we understand every aspect of that? Of course not. One of the things I think we have to realize, and one of the things that I think is a weakness that Christians today have, is we want to eliminate mystery from our life. And there is mystery to our faith. And we need to learn to embrace that mystery. See, listen to how, I'm going to read from Ephesians 2 again because it draws such a parallel with this text. The practical outworking of this. Paul writes in Ephesians, I'm going to read from chapter 4 this time, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. We need to know we've come from death to life. And then we need to know in order that, notice what the text says next, we know in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The aim, this indicates purpose, the aim of our being united to Christ in this death is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, what does that mean, the body of sin? Again, some of our Reformed theologians from the past, Calvin said this referred to the mass of sin. Charles Hodge said this referred 
to the system of old desires. A contemporary Thomas Schreiner put it, he says, believers have died with Christ so that the sinful body would no longer exercise mastery. Is sin present with us? Yes. Does sin influence us? Absolutely. What they're talking about is it no longer has dominion or mastery over us. See, just as Israel was liberated from bondage, enslavement to Egypt, we are liberated from our enslavement to the realm, to the era, to the old order of things. We have to learn to read the Bible from the perspective of kingdom, the rule and realm of God. We have to realize the story of the Bible, that the whole earth belongs to God. It's his. He created the whole thing, and it was to be the place of his rule, the place of his kingdom. And then he created mankind in his image to do what? The technical term, the theological term, is to be his vice-regent, meaning to manage God's kingdom as God's representative. That was our original calling and vocation. But then what happened? And we don't know every ounce of the origin of this, but that sneaky little serpent came in. And before we get all hung up on snakes and things, let's recognize what this is. This is Satan invading God's territory an invasion of the earth, where the earth became temporarily occupied territory. And so a part of what Jesus did as the ideal human, as the Messiah, as the ideal representative of God being God himself, was to take back that territory from Satan. The victory of kingdoms. And now we have been transferred from one realm to another. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are liberated from that enslavement. And so one of the things we have to learn to do is read the Bible in light of that. This is what we need to know. That's the first point. Look with me at verse 8. He says, now we need to believe something. And that we have to believe if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Notice the point is not just dying with Christ. The point is actually living with him. That we are alive, that we are truly free. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The point of this is life. The life Jesus now lives, he lives to God. And the life we now live, we live to God. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. If the spirit is present, you're going to see life, and you're going to see freedom. The life we live, we live to God. Not to our comforts, not to our preferences, not to our former ways of seeing life. We don't live to what makes sense to us. We live personally and really to God. This is, again, where there's such a mystery to faith that we must surrender to. There's kind of an already and not yet sense to this. The not yet is so easy to see. It's easy to see our selfishness, isn't it? 
It's a little harder to see. The mystery to see is where we live to God. And this is where, again, in Ephesians 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive to God in Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you want to know where your life truly is today? In a very real sense, and don't tell me there isn't mystery to this, in a very real sense, we are already with Jesus in the heavenly places. There is a meeting of heaven and earth, a reunion of heaven and earth, where we are with him, such as our union with Christ, and we are learning how to live out of that union which leads us to the final point. There's something to know, something to believe, and then something to consider. And verse 11 is what we must consider. You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at what it means to consider. One commentator put it this way. He says, the word he uses here is a word used in bookkeeping, in calculating accounts, in working out profits and loss figures. I'm making the accountants in our midst very, very happy right now. But this is the meaning behind the Greek word. He says, now, of course, when you do a calculation, you get an answer which, in a sense, didn't exist before. But in another sense, all that the calculation does is to make you aware of what, in fact, was true all along. It doesn't create a new reality, but until you add up the money, you don't know how much your day's takings was really worth. But adding it up doesn't make the day's takings a penny larger or smaller than they already are. What Paul is telling us here is to do the math, do the sums, work out the calculation. Don't try to screw up some sort of spiritual courage for a fresh leap of faith in which you imagine yourself to be actually sinless. But this commentator writes, here's the point. It's often hard to believe the result of the calculation. The calculation is you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. What we see is, I was selfish again. I'm cold in my prayers toward God. I yelled at somebody going down the road, or I yelled at my husband or wife, or I did this. We see all that. And Paul is saying, you need to do a different batch of calculations. Consider yourself. Add it up. Do the math. Because of Jesus, not because of your behavior, not because of the quality of your faith, not because of the quality of your spiritual life, but because of Jesus, you are dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. The hard work of being a Christian, see, it's easier to try to just live disciplined it is much harder to remember who we really are. It is much more difficult to live. But the scripture says, remember who you really are. There's something to know. There's something to believe. There is something to consider. We are alive to God in Christ. You may feel cold and dead when you wake up in the morning. You may show up for your prayers and go, oh, Lord, here I am. Boy, I feel like you're a million, billion, trillion miles away from me. You know what God sees? Because you're in Christ, your status has changed. He sees a perfect son or daughter. 
You're wrapped up in Jesus. You may not feel like it. That may not be what the evidence of your life looks like, but do the calculations. Consider yourselves. Do the bookkeeping. You are alive. You are dead to the realm of sin. That kingdom has been broken in your life, and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And the more we learn that habit, the more we cultivate ultimate liberation in our lives. The more we begin to cultivate truly being free, because we have a gracious master and a benevolent king, a king who loves us, a king who lives to intercede for us, who communicates to us by the Spirit that we are really his, that we can't lose him, and that he can't lose us. He really does want you to be free. Father, I pray that we would learn to do the math, so to speak, that we would learn to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thank you for what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, may we cultivate this. May we know, may we believe, may we consider. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together our closing hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.